I want you for a second to imagine your happy place on this planet, wherever that might be. Right, whether that's at the, the Grand Canyon, whether it's Niagara Falls, whether it's standing on the, the, the seashore and looking out at a sunset or a sunrise over, over the vast sea. Mine is in the mountains and a stream. And I want you to imagine that God would say to you, write down what you see. How would you take what you see in front of you and put it to paper? No matter how eloquent, no matter how gifted you are, words would not do it justice. That's what John tries to do in Revelation when, when, when he's standing there and he has these visions and these grand visions of vivid dragons and, and battles and, and, and horsemen and, and, and bowls and rings and fire and all this and worship. And God tells him, write down what you see. And what we have is John's spirit-led best attempt at writing down what he saw in those amazing visions. And he used the best of what this earth had in order to try to convey to us what heaven is going to be like. And, and gold and pearls and rubies and jade and all of these precious metals, most of which we can only imagine. I, I think of the old DuckTales cartoon where Scrooge McDuck would jump into his vault and just go swimming in the gold and the jewels and, the, and all of that. But John gives us this, this as, as good as he can, using human words, what heaven is going to be like. Revelation chapter 21 tells us that there's no sun or there's no moon in this new heaven, this new earth, because it's not needed. We don't need another source of light because we are living in the glory of God, and His glory is bright enough to light up the whole place. It may seem weird, but Scripture tells us there's no temple there. It may seem weird, but when you think about it, it makes sense. What was the purpose of the temple? It was a place for God to come and to be with His people. What's going to happen in heaven? We're going to be with our God. No longer will we need to have a building where, we can, where God can come and be with His people. We will live with our Savior. The dwelling place of God will be with man. It's a place where there's no sickness, no disease, no sin, no death. Some of the most beautiful words in all of Scripture are Revelation chapter 21 and verse 4. And he, Jesus he Himself said, "We will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall be, there be no mourning or crying or pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. None of that stuff that wears us out, that demoralizes us, that makes us sad. And there's going to be a feast and a celebration. Revelation 19, 6 and 9 says, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give Him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made Himself ready. Made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. And it's not just us. It's not just Williamstown, West Virginia, or the Mid-Ohio Valley, or the WVBC, or, or the United States of America. It is 
every saint who has placed their faith in Jesus Christ across the globe, across all times. Revelation 14, 6 refers to it as every nation, every tribe, and language, and people. What an amazing scene that is. How beautiful heaven must be. We read of a place that's called heaven. It's made for the pure and the free. These truths in God's Word He has given. How beautiful heaven must be. In heaven, no drooping, nor pining, no wishing for elsewhere to be. God's light is forever there shining. How beautiful heaven must be. Pure waters of life there are flowing, and all who drink may be free. Rare jewels of splendor are glowing. How beautiful heaven must be. How beautiful heaven must be. Sweet home of the happy and free. Fair haven of rest for the weary. How beautiful heaven must be. Man, I long for this place. I pray that you long for this place. And I pray that every day that God gives us a breath uh, while we live on this planet, that we anticipate it and we expect it and we desire it more and more and more. C.S. Lewis maybe said it best of all recent writers when he said, if we find ourselves, if we find in ourselves a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. Heaven. That's where our home is. But before, that, we, can, before we can experience that, something has to happen. Something has to come or someone has to come. The text that we have been in for about two months now, now tells us who that someone is. Matthew chapter 16, verses 25, 26, and 27, and 28. We'll just finish out the chapter. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Verse 27, for the Son of Man is going to come with his angels and the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are, many, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Would you pray with me, please? Father God, thank you for today. God, thank you for the opportunity to lift our voices in praise and exaltation of you. God, I pray that, uh, that you were glorified, that you were honored as you should be. But God, I pray that uh, this faith family, whether here or at home, was encouraged as we need to be. God, I pray that this, this picture and this promise of heaven fuels us for the life that we live here and now. God, until you call us home or until you come and return to claim your bride, I pray that we live with expectation of what heaven's going to be like. And God, help us just to rely on every promise that we see in your Scripture, every promise that you have kept, and help that to give us this strong assurance that heaven is real, that you are there preparing it for us, and that is going to be our forever home. God, I pray that today, that that person that may be sitting here that doesn't have a relationship with you is today awakened by your Spirit and today accepts and surrenders to your Son, Jesus, the only way back to you. 
God, I just pray that you would bless the few minutes that we're going to spend together this morning as we look at the amazingness of heaven and what must happen for us to realize it. God, we love you. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen. Last week, we saw that the church is a community of believers who follow Jesus. This week, we want to enthusiastically add to that, that that the church is a community of believers who eagerly expect the King to come. Matthew 16, uh, I love the way that uh, the the Christ-centered commentary explains this or states this. He says, oh, what the great reversal it is. Live for yourself and you will die. Die to yourself and you will live. And as you live, eagerly expect the King to come. What Matthew tells us in a few brief phrases in Matthew chapter 16, John uh, unfolds for us a little bit more in Revelation. If you have your Bible, I encourage you to turn to Revelation. If you need to, the quick way is to turn to the back cover and just go from the back side because there's not a whole lot in there uh, until you get to Revelation. And I want you to look at what Revelation tells us, but I need you to remember what Revelation is there for. Remember that Revelation was a letter written to our first century brothers and sisters who were being persecuted. they, they They were being tortured, they were being killed, they were being imprisoned for their faith. So, so this letter was written, as we find in the beginning, beginning sentences of the book, this letter was written to encourage them in their walk. So when we come to Revelation, it needs to encourage us also, because it would not have been a whole lot of encouragement to our first century brothers and sisters for John to be solely talking about something way off in the distance. It wouldn't have been encouragement to them as they are seeing their children snatched from their hands, as they are being hauled off to jail, as they are being crucified, martyred for their faith. That would not have been much of of a comfort if, if, if John is just saying, hey, sometime in the distant, distant future, this is going to happen. No. It was written to them to encourage them to stay strong and resolute in their faith. It was to remind them that the victory had been won. It was to remind them that even though life, may be get, life might get tough, your life might be taken from you, that something better uh, is waiting just on the other side of that. You may be thrown into jail, your life may be taken from you, but remember the promises that I have made to you. You can't go any further in God's Word than Revelation chapter 22. You can, but it's like the weights and measures and then the index, right? That's not inspired, all right? Revelation 22 is the last part of the inspired Word of God. And in Revelation 22, we see a reassurance of what is to come. Regardless of their timing of death, their place of death, their mode of death, God was encouraging our brothers and sisters to keep death and to see death from his perspective. Charles Spurgeon had a pretty good understanding of this when he said that death is no punishment to the believer. It is the gate of endless joy. Jesus reminds us over and over again that he has overcome Satan, that he has overcome sin and evil and death, so that we f- and so now we fight not to win that victory of heaven, but we fight because heaven has already been won for us. We fight, we are fighting on the winning team. 
And he reminds us in no uncertain terms that he is coming back. Look in Revelation chapter 22 with me for just a few minutes. In Revelation chapter 22, verse 6, these words are written. And and he said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits, of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And in the words of Jesus, and behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of of the prophecy of this book. Now, keep reading down to verse 12, the next section of red letters, where where Jesus says, Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. And in the very last words that we hear from Jesus in Scripture come in Revelation chapter 22, verse number 20, surely... I am coming soon. And then notice what John says after this, and I hope that this is our response as well, that we have nothing left to say except to say amen. So be it. And then join in the pleading and the begging, Jesus, come. Lord Jesus, come. Jesus is coming to take us all home. And in the grand scheme of things, he is coming soon. If you go throughout Scripture, there are a lot of different phrases and words that are used to talk about the coming of Jesus, some in noun form, like parousia, which is just, was just simply the arrival, talking about the arrival of Jesus, coming uh, at the end of the age, or uh, uh, epiphania, which we get the word epiphany from, um, where it's talking about that, that he is coming, that he, it's closely related to another word, revelation that we have, or apocalypsis, that Jesus is coming. It's going to be revealed. He's going to be revealed. He is coming again, and he will appear. And these ideas of appearing and revelation emphasize that the, the Jesus coming is going to be visible, that you are going to know it. It's not going to be you're messing around in your house and doing something and you hear a clang in the other end of the house and you say, did you hear that? You're going to know when Jesus comes again. It's going to be visible. It's going to be sure. It's not going to be anything that's hidden from view. It's not going to be anything that's a secret and it's not going to be just his spiritual presence. The coming of Jesus Christ is referred to as the day throughout Scripture. The day. There's some qualifiers that we add on to that just to make sure that we know what it's talking about. In Philippians, it's the day of Christ. In 1 Thessalonians, it's the day of the Lord. In 1 Corinthians, uh, in 1 Corinthians it's the day of Lord Jesus. In Philippians chapter 1, it's the day of Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 1.18 throws us all together. It's the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, or simply the day of God. It's talked to and it's, it's mentioned in verb form as well that Jesus will come. It talks about coming as his first advent or his, his birth here on the planet, but also he's coming again to fulfill all things in 2 Thessalonians and Revelation all throughout. And it, it pictures him as coming again in clouds with glory and with power. And clouds is, is, a, is a representation of divine glory. How did, G, how did God lead the Israelites through the wilderness, out of Egypt? Through a cloud. He is going to appear. He is going to be revealed. He is going to descend. Now, we don't know exactly 
what this coming will look like. Scripture gives us some pretty amazing ideas, but here's what we do know. That Jesus is going to come personally. He's not, this isn't a job where he's just going to send Michael and Gabriel and the angels. He is coming with them. Jesus is coming personally. Jesus is coming physically. Philippians 3 and 1 John 3 tell us that he's coming in this resurrected body. He is coming physically, not just in a spirit. He is coming physically. He is coming visibly. He will return visibly and publicly in a way that all people will see him coming in the clouds. Matthew, Revelation, 2 Thessalonians, erase any idea, any misconception that he can be missed when he comes again. You will know it. It is imminent. It's not a word we use a whole lot in our vocabulary, but it's imminent, meaning that it's near and when it comes, it will happen quickly. We can't know any, with any certainty. That's why he tells us, he himself tells us in, in Matthew chapter 24, to therefore stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. Watch therefore, for you will, neither, you will know neither the day nor the hour. Early Christians lived in this anticipation that Jesus could return at any time. We too should live in anticipation that he could return at any time. And finally, Jesus' coming, his second coming, will be final. No other chances, no other opportunities to surrender your life to him because it will be final. When he first came, he came into a stable, and he came relatively peacefully and grew as a child to a teenager, to an adult, When he comes again, it's going to be a different picture. Revelation tells us that when he comes again, it will be as a triumphant warrior king and as a judge, bringing judgment, salvation, finality to God's plan, ushering in a new heaven and a new earth. This day when Jesus returns has a two-sided aspect to it. One for the believer and one for the unbeliever. For the believer, it's a day of salvation. It's a day of redemption. It's a day of glorious hope. There may be fear, but it's this fear that is in awe of who Jesus is. There's this fear because of who he is and all the glory that he has. And we are now beholding this. Uh, It's not something that we read about. It's not even something like Moses got a small glimpse of back in Exodus. We see God in all his glory. And it will drive us to awe and to reverence. Though we don't know the exact time of his day, we watch and we won't be surprised. But for the unbeliever, the day of of Jesus' coming is a day of judgment. It's a day of wrath. There will be fear. There will be a real fear. It It may even be a reverent fear that it will be a fear that it's too late because Jesus' coming is final. These will be caught off guard because they have been so consumed with everything that is going on around them. This is why we encourage you from the pulpit, from our literature, uh, from the things that we uh, send out, this is why we encourage us as a faith family to make sure that we are living with urgency as if we truly believe that Jesus Christ could come back at any time. But we also live with purpose. 
just in case God decides to hold Jesus, King Jesus back a little bit longer. Church, I think, I believe, that we have either become distracted or we have been lulled to sleep. We have allowed negative things to distract us, whether that's an ongoing pandemic, whether that's the political situation that we find ourselves in or found ourselves in over the past few years, whether that's broken relationships, whether that's a job that's not fulfilling to us, whether that's disease that consumes a lot of our attention, a lot of our time, those broken relationships with people we love, we've become distracted. But we've also been lulled to sleep by all the good things that God has given to us. We live in the freest country on the planet. We live in a country that, that has been blessed beyond almost any other on the planet. But instead of using, allowing that freedom to drive us to share ultimate freedom with other people, we've been lulled to sleep, comfortably asleep. We allow good gifts that the giver gives us to take the spot, to take the place of the giver. We elevate the good blessings of life over the one who gave them to us. He has made us so rich and successful and free and comfortable that we forget that there's a world around us in desperate need of a Savior. And we too forget that we desperately need a Savior because we have made all these other blessings from our God a God in which we find our hope, in which we place our hope and our comfort. We're distracted or we're asleep and either one of them is dangerous and church, either one of them can be eternally damning to us. Hebrews 12 needs to be forever in the front of our heads and in the way we live, where the writer encourages us to lay aside every weight and sin that so cling, that clings so closely and run with perseverance and endurance the race that has been set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, for, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Guys, I, church, I don't want us asleep. Christianity cannot afford for us to be asleep. We need to be fully awake. We need to be fully on fire. We need to be just a little bit ticked off about how things are going around us, not at the people around us. Because sometimes, often, we fall guilty to, to forgetting who our enemy truly is. We see somebody who disagrees with us as our enemy. We see somebody who's not like us as our enemy. If we're Republican, we think Democrats are our enemies. If we're Democrat, we think Republicans are our enemies. If we're Christian, we think Muslims are our enemy. If we do this, we think people who do that are our enemy, and that is not the case. We're reminded in Scripture of who our true enemy is. It's the one who is infecting our minds to think that somebody else is our enemy. Every person on this planet is made in the image of God. Every person on this planet needs to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. And I pray to God daily that my faith family has more love than hate in their hearts so that even the person that we can't stand the most, we still desire eternity for them in the presence of God. We need to stay focused. We can't be distracted on who our true enemy is. And we also cannot be comfortably asleep. We have become experts of walking out the door and flipping the switch. We have been experts at, at, at forgetting completely how that song, the truth of a song, spoke to us and emotion welled up inside of us. 
We forget so easily how, how the communion service affected us as we focused on the sacrifice that Jesus made for us. And on rare occasions, we forget when the pastor says something that we should remember and that should fuel us, and we walk out the door and we forget all about it. And we go back, and it's as if we, as if we lay our heads back on our pillows and fall back asleep comfortably while the rest of the world around us desperately needs Jesus Christ. Instead of walking out the door and continuing life as normal, church, what if we shake things up a little bit? What, what if we made a little bit of noise? What if we lived like we believe that our King is victorious and we believe that He's coming back to take us home? We cannot stand to be distracted. We can't stand, we can't afford to be comfortable. But nor should we act in life like we're defeated. We need to believe that the best is in front of us. We need to remember that as believers, what lies ahead of us is better than what is behind us. And we need to walk eagerly, excitedly, passionately, powerfully toward that instead of walking around like we've had our lunch handed to us day after day after day. We don't need to walk around like we're defeated, like somebody has ruined everything for us. Please excuse this, uh, this illustration, this memory, but I remember when I was much younger and I walked into work and I was just having a bad day and evidently I was letting it affect me because I, I, was, I was just showing it at my countenance and, and I, wasn't, I must not have been very um, pleasing to be around. And my boss at the time said, who peed in your cornflakes? We walk around church like somebody has ruined our breakfast. We walk around with this chip on our shoulder, just ticked off all the time, instead of just exuding the love and the passion and the commitment of Jesus Christ. My question for you today is, are you, are you walking around today like you eagerly expect Jesus to come? Are you walking around today like you're looking forward to a root canal? Our first century brothers and sisters were experiencing a torture, a regime, persecution that makes our worst day here look like a walk in a day at Disneyland. Are you walking around today expecting your victorious king to return for you? The Bible is quite clear that, that, that Jesus, King Jesus, is coming back for us. Paul tells us this. James tells us this. Peter tells us this. John in Revelation tells us this. And Jesus himself tells us this. King Jesus conquered death by going through the cross and walking out of the grave. King Jesus returned to heaven and is preparing a place for us. King Jesus will finish what he started and return and take us home. We're going to sing a song in just a minute. There is a king. There is a king seated among us. Let every heart receive him now. Where there is praise, he will inhabit. There will be grace and mercy all around. My favorite lines of this song are, it won't be long, we will behold him. And every tear he'll wipe away. We'll be at home, the war will be over. Soon we will meet our Savior 
face to face. I pray, church, that you believe Jesus when he says, I'm making all things new. I believe you believe him, or I hope you believe him when he tells you, I'm making you new. I hope that you believe our king when he says, I am coming soon, coming to redeem all creation, coming to redeem you. I pray that you eagerly wait, that you eagerly walk, that you eagerly talk and live and love as if you believe your king is returning to take you home.